He is risen. Let's do it one more time. He is risen. Boy, has he. I'm so excited to be with you in worship this morning. Happy Easter to all of you. You guys look fantastic. All your pastels and your spring colors and even you fellas look okay. I, um, oh, it's such a joy to be here on Easter morning, and what an undeserved privilege it is for me to be able to preach the gospel. Um, we had a little scare this morning. I, uh, we have a tradition in our house uh, we've been doing since our, I guess, since our oldest was oh, probably two or three, so this is going on six, seven years, but uh, we kind of build a tomb, uh, you know, out of kind of Play-Doh looking stuff. I don't really know what it is. And then, we, uh, then, we, then my wife bakes it, and it kind of hardens. And so we have this really cool tomb, and uh, we get some kind of rock to, to, uh, to, to kind of block the uh, passageway in or out. And three crosses are built into the top, and we, you know, we kind of have the scene right there. And on Friday night after our um, Good Friday service, we, we take Jesus and uh, we put him in the tomb. And that's a big deal in our family that um, my wife or I remember before the kids awaken on Sunday morning to take Jesus out. Uh, we don't want to get them on the wrong path theologically early. And it's a really big deal. I always set like two alarms and whatnot. Well, for some reason this year, I was like, we had the sunrise service this morning at the George's Chapel. It was absolutely beautiful. And I was out the door in like the fours this morning. And so I just didn't think about it. Uh, I mean, it's Easter morning, but I don't uh, know what I was doing. And so somewhere in the middle of preaching this morning service, it hit me. And uh, I nearly had a heart attack. And so I, um, uh, after the service was over, I called my wife and I said, I said, babe, babe. And she's like, yeah, yeah. I said, is he risen? <laughs> and uh, she said, well, I'll let you hear it uh, from David. David's my four-year-old. And, um, and uh, he said, daddy. And she said his hand was, he had his hand all the way in the tomb. She said, daddy, he's live. He's live. <laughs> so she had remembered by God's grace. And uh, Jesus is alive. Um, yeah, praise God. Well, I uh, don't know if you guys have seen, I haven't had a chance to see the, uh, the movie yet. I saw it just came out, it's gotten great reviews, The Case for Christ. And um, some of y'all may have seen that. Uh, it's a, a great uh, Christian author named Lee Strobel, but uh, before he was a Christian author, he was a journalist with the Chicago Tribune. And he, um, his wife uh, came to salvation in Christ, and it really frustrated him. He was a skeptic of the faith. And to see his wife have this life-changing thing going on that he couldn't explain or rationalize or understand really bothered him. So he took on the mission to, um, to uh, disprove Christianity, to, to, to take it down to the, the substance of fact or fiction and, and make up enough plausible deniability that it could be uh, actually denied. And, and he asked uh, his boss at the time, he said, where should I begin? His boss said, well, if your goal is to uh, disprove Christianity, then you've got to start with the resurrection. If you disprove that Christ rose from the dead, then all of Christianity is merely a house of cards. And so that, that's exactly where Lee Strobel began. And uh, just like so many brilliant uh, apologists before him, C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell and many others who set out to do the very same thing. In his efforts to disprove the resurrection, he became a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to talk about what is the epicenter of the Christian faith, that there is a tomb that is empty. And as Josh said in our opening, it is because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Now, he read the text in Luke chapter 24. Uh, I just want to key in on a couple verses. Would you all stand with me this morning? 
And I want to read again just this first six verses of the resurrection narrative that may be familiar to some, maybe not to others. But listen to these words. These are the women that were there Friday night. They saw Jesus crucified. They saw where they laid his body. They saw where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took the body. They went home. They prepared spices, and they come back. Uh, They had to rest on the Sabbath. They come back Sunday morning. So chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood beside them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. This is the word of the Lord for the people of the Lord and the people of God said, praise be to God. Have a seat. Father, thank you that we can read these words and the truth can come alive afresh this morning, just as those women looked longingly into that tomb, wondering what has happened to the body of our Lord. And it was the angels that rebuked them and said, why do you look for the living among the dead? The truth was declared that Christ is risen from the grave and the world will be turned upside down. Lord, I pray that we would revel in that truth, we would celebrate that truth, that truth would fill our hearts with joy afresh this morning. And for the one who is here this morning that is indeed a skeptic, just like the disciples were that first day, that first Sunday afternoon, just like Thomas who persisted in his doubt, just like Lee Strobel as he sought to disprove the resurrection, I pray that by the um, unspeakable power, unfathomable power of your Holy Spirit, You would bring life out of death. You would bring a resurrection in someone's heart this morning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all of the gospel writers tell the same story. They all uh, tell it from a little bit different angle. They all give different details so that we can get the composite uh, whole of um, what happened that morning when uh, the body of Christ was no longer in the grave. In all four gospel accounts, the tomb is empty. In all four gospel accounts, there is an angelic presence who declares to those who were first arrivals from Mary to some of the other women who had prepared spices to John and Peter who declared to them that Christ has risen from the dead. He is alive. And uh, you got to do something with this historical reality of an empty tomb. Of course, there are many detractors. Uh, began that very day. And in the Gospel of Matthew, it says that the Jews panicked, the Jewish authorities panicked when it was uh, uncovered that Christ was no longer the tomb. And so the Roman soldiers who told them that Christ is risen, the angelic presence, we were knocked down. The Jews said, no, 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 we're not going to tell that story. Here's what we'll do. And they paid them, and it says in the Gospel of Matthew, they paid them to share this, to, to spread the rumor that the disciples had stole the body. Now, I can see how that would work for a little while. Uh, that, that, would, that would be okay for that, that afternoon and maybe the ensuing days because the disciples were actually huddled up. John's account tells us they were huddled up in an upper room in Jerusalem, literally door locked, wouldn't go out into the streets for fear of the Jews. This is after the crucifixion and even persisting into Sunday. They would not come out because they saw what had been done to Christ and they thought, boy, we're going to be next. We cannot be identified with him. They were confused. They were doubting. They were afraid. And then the text said that Christ appeared to them. He appeared in his resurrection body. 
He didn't come shuffling in as one bloodied and battered that had somehow survived the Roman crucifixion and found his way out of a tomb and, and taken out the Roman guard and found the He appeared to them in perfect health. In fact, uh, more alive than he had ever been. And yet with the scars in his hands that even Thomas would put his finger in and touch before he would believe. And when he appeared to them on multiple occasions, 11 recorded in scripture, and he appeared not just to them but to others, to 500 at one time, all of a sudden the Jews had a hard time keeping this rumor afloat. In fact, when the disciples were questioned, did you guys steal the body? The disciples said one after another, no. This group who was huddled up, afraid for their lives, all of a sudden they were out on the highways and byways. 40 days later, they are boldly and publicly preaching the gospel to everyone that will listen, including the Jewish authorities that want them dead. All of a sudden, you couldn't shut them up. What's the difference? What happened to this group of cowardly, ragtag fishermen that all of a sudden become this missional force to be reckoned with in the first century world? The only plausible explanation, Lee Strobel would tell you, is that they'd seen the risen Christ. A man will die for what he believes to be true, whether it's true or not, but he won't die for what he knows to be alive. Ten of these 11 guys are martyred in brutal ways. By the way, separately and individually. The 11th one, John, didn't have it easy. Exiled to Patmos. Not one of the 11 would ever recant of the testimony, he is risen. Not one of them would say, we made it up. Not one of them would spare his own life to say that Jesus had indeed not risen from the dead. I want to tell you, it's tough to hold to the idea that the disciples stole the body. Well, let me, let me push forward from that point onward to make, to make another point that the resurrection, is, it's been said here on the stage already, is the good news. Now, now the, the, the word gospel means good news, and the gospel is only good news. The gospel, the idea that God loved us enough in our sin to send his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. So in other words, Christ was pinned to the cross on Friday afternoon as the final Passover lamb. That's what Paul would call him, the ultimate Passover lamb, the one that fulfilled 1,500 years of slaughtering innocent blood for the temporary salvation as a shadow pointing to the substance that would come in a Messiah. The atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's only good news if indeed he is who he said he is. If Christ does not rise from the grave, there is no atonement for sin, at least not in Christ. Because no man can die for the sin of another if he has any sin of his own. If, if death had any sin to get his claw into, it would simply drag Christ into the grave as it does every other man that has ever lived, and he would remain. For him to conquer sin, death, and the grave, he can't have any sin. And so he went to make the payment for our sin on Friday evening. And it's like when you pay with your credit card today, and you have to put that chip in nowadays. And usually you wait, and that machine says, processing. That payment went forth. That propitiatory payment to satisfy the wrath of God, it went forth and it was processing. And all Saturday it was processing. And Sunday morning it was processing. And as the dawn broke forth, it appeared approved. The wrath of God satisfied. That's the good news. But it's only good if Christ is risen from the grave. Understand that our salvation rests upon his Messiahship. His Messiahship rests upon his resurrection. The empty tomb is the receipt of our redemption. It's the assurance of our salvation. It is the proof positive that Christ is exactly who he said he is. And that for any that trust him, that have saving faith in him, they will indeed be saved. Now, 
Why am I particular in saying saving faith? I'm particular in saying saving faith this morning because the Bible delineates between saving faith and merely intellectual faith. James 2.19, the Bible says, even the demons believe and shudder. The demons believe. They know of the power and authority in the third person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, and they believe. Even they believe. They know of the events of the Passion Week. They know he was crucified, and they know he rose. Even they believe. But here's what they don't do. They don't put their hope in him. They don't put their trust in him. They don't put their confidence in him. Thus, they are not saved. Theirs is merely an intellectual faith. Well, in Memphis, Tennessee, in our day and age, I understand that there are many in our culture who are cultural Christians. They profess the name of Christ, but truth be told, theirs is like that of the demons. It's an intellectual faith. It's the faith of their grandmama. It's the faith that they were raised, knowing that Christ died is an atoning sacrifice, knowing that he hung on the cross and believing. Did he rise to that? Yeah, I think he did. And they will profess with their lips that Christ is alive, but not believe in their hearts on him with any saving faith. Now there's a difference, I wanna probe this. When Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night and said, how must I be saved? Jesus said to Nicodemus, nothing about intellectual faith. He said, Nicodemus, in order to be saved, you must be born again. You must be. Nicodemus had a problem with that. Well, what does that mean? Am I supposed to climb back in my mother's womb? How can you be born again? Listen, born again has nothing to do with an academic exercise of the understanding and reiteration of the events of the Passion Week, of the crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Being born again has everything to do with a completely changed mind and heart as to who you are, what sin is, and who Christ is. Jesus said, you must be born again. It's not enough to just believe what the demons believe. You have to have saving faith. Saving faith, you'll be born again. Your mind and heart will be radically changed as to who you are, what sin is, and who Christ is. And so really the seemingly obvious question on the table is, did Christ rise again? But I want to tell you there's an equally as crucial question on the table this morning and that is, is your faith in him? Look, not many people that walked in this morning have never heard, not, not many people in our day, in our culture, have never heard the narrative that we've read twice now. Not many people say, wait, wait, say it again, what happened? Not here, maybe in India where we ministered among the Banjar, but not here, but let me tell you what's prevalent here. Let me tell you what many people in this room has going on. Many people in this room have heard it so many times they've become numb to it. Many people in this room would say, yeah, yeah, heard the story, totally get it, understand it, I'm a Christian, but they don't have saving faith. That's the crowd I'm preaching to this morning. And so the equally crucial question is not only did he rise, but are you born again? Is your faith in his raising from the dead merely an intellectual faith or is it a saving faith? And so to answer that question, I want to rewind the clock about 40 hours. I wanna take us back to Friday uh, late afternoon as Christ hung on the cross. And I wanna show you a scene which I I think uh, by God's grace gives us an unbelievable depiction of what saving faith really looks like and what it really means to be born again. That's the question I want us to wrestle with this morning. 
And so let me take you to this text. We've got it on the screen for you. Luke 23. Here's, here's what happened 40 hours before the breaking of the dawn. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Christ. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him saying, this is the king of the Jews. Now, Matthew's gospel right here records a verse. I want you to see it. Matthew 27, 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. You get it? Hurling their insults at Christ who's being crucified. Save yourself and us. The robbers, plural, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, fast forward three hours. Three hours later, the story continues. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at Christ saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He is, he is continuing his insults. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, Front and center in this most important of all events and moments in human history, as Christ is bearing the weight of the sin of all mankind, he shares the spotlight. In these critical hours on the cross, he shares the spotlight with this nameless fellow, this guy we call the thief on the cross. And I think it's providentially ordered, it's intentionally done by God so that we might have an unmistakable undeniable, unforgettable, unbelievable idea, picture of what saving faith is, of what it means to be born again. We've got it. So first, let me tell you a little bit about this guy, this thief on the cross. He was a Jew. We know that because uh, Romans were not crucified. Uh, uh, Romans would, were, would be beheaded if they had been condemned, but only Jews were put forth to the cruelty and the shame of a, of a death of crucifixion. And so this guy was a Jew, he's a robber, he's a thief, and we see for the first few hours on the cross, he is bitter about not only his condemnation, he thinks he's been done wrong, he's bitter about his circumstance, uh, we see that he's darkened in his sin, he's darkened to his sin, and we see that he hates Jesus. He's reviling him and hurling insults at the only one who can save him. And yet, unmistakably, we see this same man, three hours later, repentant, we see him owning and embracing his own sin. We see him looking to Christ as Savior. We see that his mind and heart have been radically changed as far as who he is, what sin is, and who Christ is. He's been born again. Now let me quickly deconstruct some of the myths before I talk about what saving faith is of what saving faith is not. Just deconstruct a few myths that we get from the thief on the cross. First of all, he had no record of moral righteousness before the moment of his conversion. 
None. And after his conversion, he had no great resume of service unto God. None. Often we attribute someone's salvation. Even subvertly, we, 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 we make reference to somebody. Oh, yeah, yeah, he was, he was always a great guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, you, you can see the way he serves the Lord. You, you know that, brother. Safe. Listen, the thief on the cross had no righteousness before his conversion, no service to God after. He had merely saving faith, and that was enough. The second thing I want you to understand is we often attribute conversion and true salvation to, uh, to having the right influences and the right circumstances. Just blessed that God gave me the right group of friends, and, and uh, through them I saw Christ. Maybe that's how God did it. Man, I sat under such and such as teaching for all those years. You know I got saved. We, we talk about influences. We talk about circumstances that somehow might lead. Understand the thief on the cross, he had none of that. Scholars say this is the first time he's ever laid eyes on Jesus. That day as they carried their crosses through Jerusalem. And all he saw was the one who was supposed to be the king of the Jews wilting under the weight of the cross. Falling to his face, Simon of Cyrene, carry this man's cross. He cannot carry it any longer. All he saw was that his enemies were triumphing over him. His friends had turned away from him. Public opinion had turned against him. This guy had no influence that pointed him towards believing this guy is the Christ. He's the Savior. None. There was not one voice at the crucifixion that said, Behold the Lamb of God. Every bit of this guy's circumstance, none of it would lead you to believe, we're about to have a conversion. Hey, watch this. And you come to the conclusion, this guy was saved solely, solely by the sovereign grace of God. Understand, saving faith is solely by the sovereign grace of God. And we might be tempted to say, well, yeah, yeah, but man, all the miracles and everything that accompanied what was going on, I mean, he had those advantages. No, understand, this guy's conversion happened somewhere in the quietness of his own heart before darkness covered the earth, before the earth quaked, before the lightning flashed, before the curtain, temp, uh, the curtain of the temple rent down the middle, before the centurion said, surely this man was the son of God, before the resurrection, in the stillness of his heart, apart from any unnatural phenomena, he was born again. All right, now listen. What is then saving faith? What was, what was it that happened in the heart of the thief on the cross that I'm convinced has not happened in the heart of every single person in this room, not even every professing Christian? There's too many of us in here that say I believe but if your faith was tested by fire, would it be the faith of the demons that believes and shudders? Or would it be the faith of the thief on the cross? Which would it be? Wrestle with this with me. Saving faith, first point. Saving faith begins with brokenness over your sin. If you listen to me now, I'm not saying recognizing your imperfections. If you have never been undone by your wretchedness, yours is not a saving faith. The thief on the cross hung, and in the midst of his hurling insults at Jesus, in the midst of his revival, if we had paused and been able to interview him in that moment and say, What do you think? You're perfect? 
You know what he would have probably said? No, I'm not perfect. Who are you anyway? He may have recognized he was not perfect, but he wasn't broken over his sin. And yet, three hours later, what was true of him? His partner in crime saying the very same things that he's just been saying for the last couple hours. And he says, hey, 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 stop it. Stop it. What are you doing? Do you not know what you're saying? He's done nothing wrong. We are getting what we deserve. Something happened where that man was broken over his sin. And here's the punchline. Until you and I see in the thief on the cross a portrait of ourselves, we will never join him in saying, Lord, remember me. And somebody has a protest in your mind. Somebody's saying, well, that's unfair, isn't it? The guy was a thief on a cross. He had committed crimes worthy of his condemnation to the death. I'm not sure it's fair to say, yeah, in him I see me. Well, listen, I don't know about you, but I would say I absolutely see myself in him. I'll stand before you and admit publicly, I am a thief. I too have robbed. I've only done worse, I've robbed God, an almighty God. You know what he's given me? He, he has given me a measure of health to serve, great resources, gifts, capabilities, margin, time. He's, he's supplied my every need. He's given me an abundance of opportunities by which I might make him known. And I have taken that which a holy God has given me to make known his glory to the ends of the earth. You know what I've done? I have used it over and over and over again to serve a different master altogether, namely myself. I have robbed God. I'm a thief. And I'm no better, no more righteous than the man that hung next to Christ. And truth be told, neither are you. And until we quit justifying our sin, we'll never have saving faith. I don't care if you believe the truth of the resurrection or not. You can't be saved apart from brokenness over your sin. Great scholar Arthur Pink said, we cannot put on the garments of righteousness until we take off the filthy rags of self-righteousness. And it's true. We must be broken over our sin. Secondly, saving faith comes not only when we're broken over our sin, that's where it begins, but when we recognize we are helpless to save ourselves. You know, my favorite thing that's so obvious about the thief on the cross is <clears throat> he's helpless. There is nothing he can do in and of himself to save himself. There's nothing. He cannot choose to walk now on paths of righteousness. His feet are spiked to a tree. He cannot say, I'm going to serve the Lord with my hands. I'm going to put my hands to do good works. His hands are nailed to a cross. He can't choose to turn over a new leaf and now live unto God. He's about to die. He's got nothing. All he's got is conviction over his sin and convinced that he's helpless. And he turns and says, Lord, remember me. And here's the gospel. There are only two prerequisites for coming to Christ. And he had them both. Convicted over your sin. Are you broken? In recognition of your own helplessness. I can't do anything about it in and of myself. Third, saving faith is evidenced by repentance. 
It's not just to say, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I believe that Christ rose from the tomb. I don't think the disciples stole the body. I don't think those women went to the wrong tomb. I don't, I don't believe it. You know what? I think he rose. Not enough to have an intellectual faith. It's only saving if it's evidenced by repentance. Has there been such a brokenness in your heart over your own sin that when you turned not merely from your sin, you didn't simply have enough of your sin, you turned from your sin and towards Christ. The thief on the cross didn't merely rebuke the other criminal. He turned to Jesus and said, will you do for me what I can't do for myself? Lord, remember me. He turned from his sin. He turned to Christ, and here's what he did. He put all of his hope in Christ. Does he have any other hope? He put all of his confidence in Christ. He put all of his trust in Christ. That's repentance. Don't you know that if this man had had five more years, if, you, if they had somehow taken, he had got a last minute pardon, and they had taken him off the cross, after the conversation he had with Christ, when Jesus looked back and said, today you're going to be with me in my kingdom, don't you know if they had taken him off the cross five years, 50 years, however long you had given him, don't you know this man would have served the Lord with his whole heart? You read the story and you know it. You wouldn't be able to intimidate this guy with death. He's been on a cross. He's already died to himself. Now Christ would be alive in him. You just know it. Because even though he had no hands to serve, he had no feet to walk on the right path, he had a tongue and a heart. And with that tongue, he confessed. With that heart, he believed. It was evidenced by repentance. I'll show you what else, saving faith. It comes from a mind and heart awakened by the Holy Spirit to the truth of Christ. Awakened by the Holy Spirit to the truth of Christ. Do you know that this man knew in his dying hours what most men never know? He said to his buddy, don't you fear God? Like he knew right then that Jesus Christ is God, and that one day every man will stand before him, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is indeed Christ the Lord. He knows that there's a God who will literally mete out judgment to the living and the dead. He knows that in his dying moments, and he says, this man has done nothing wrong. He knows of the righteousness of Christ. He knows of the sinlessness of Christ. He knows that Christ is the God-man, and he said, now as for us, we're getting what we deserve. He owns his sin. He says, I'm a sinner. I am wretched and depraved. I'm getting exact. That, that he knows that the wages of sin are death. And he says, Lord, remember me. He knows that Christ is Lord. Lord, remember me. He knows that only Christ can save. When you come, he knows that one day Christ will come again. How does he know this? When you come into your kingdom, he knows that one day Christ will inherit an earthly kingdom where literally he will establish in the, the Davidic throne again and reign with peace that comes like tidal waves and covers this earth. He knows it. Here's how he knows it. The Holy Spirit has awakened his mind to the truth about Christ and has radically changed his heart. You know what we're seeing? In those dark hours of the man's crucifixion, his mind's changing, isn't it? Changing about himself. Changing about his sin. Changing about who Christ is. Watch this. Saving faith is never misunderstood 
overlooked or ignored by Christ. Now, to some of you, that's a warning. To some of you, it's an assurance. Jesus Christ knows your heart. He knows if yours is merely an intellectual faith or if it's a saving faith. We don't manipulate God. We don't pull a fast one on the Lord. He knows if we are indeed born again, if our faith is a saving faith. He knows. And in this great moment where you think, if there's ever a moment where the Son of God might be excused from pardoning a man from his sin, here he is bearing the weight of the curse of sin. He is becoming the curse that we might become the righteousness of God. And here in this moment, where the Father has forsaken him, where his enemies are reviling him. Here in this moment, when someone says, hey, Lord, remember me, you'd think maybe in this moment he may be overlooked. He may be rightly overlooked. And yet what does Christ do? He turns and he immediately responds. Truly I say unto you, today you'll be with me in paradise. And we're meant to see that there is no such thing as an inconvenient time for a sinner to approach the throne room of grace. And we're meant to understand that I don't care how far you feel from God, how wrapped up in sin you really are, you are no further than the thief on the cross who was moments earlier reviling insults to our Lord as he was crucified. And we're meant to see that the Lord is willing and he is able to save any repentant sinner. Anyone whose heart has been gripped with saving faith. Look at this. Saving faith brings us into joyous and unending fellowship with our Savior. Joyous and unending fellowship with our Savior. Had the Lord Jesus merely responded to the man's request, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If the Lord Jesus had merely responded to him, today you will be in paradise. That would have been an incredible demonstration of God's mercy and of his grace. Amen? Incredible. The thief himself would have been, uh, his fears would have been set aside. Here was the problem. The Savior wasn't satisfied with today you'll be in paradise. It was the delight of the Savior's heart to say today you'll be with me. Christ hung on the cross for the joy set before him. He endured the wrath of God for the sinners that might be brought into fellowship with him. It was the joy of Christ on the cross to know that this day a sinner with saving faith will be in fellowship with me in paradise. Joyous and unending. God has called us into the fellowship of his son. Finally, saving faith is met with a promise. You're broken over your sin, undone. You, You could have been in church as a professing Christian your whole life, and you may not have been broken over your sin until this very moment. Broken of your sin, recognizing your helplessness, recognizing that all the religious good you've done over the last decades was merely a performance to convince someone else or maybe God that you are or deserve to be saved. 
But even now going, no, filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. Even now, you may be realizing brokenness, helplessness, hating my sin, yearning for Christ, repentance. He will never ignore this plea, knowing that he will meet, that you are about to be ushered into unending and endless fellowship. Your mind has been awakened to the truth of who Christ is and who you are in your sin. Understand, the moment that he is yours and you are his, is met, you are met with a promise. Listen to this. Truly I say unto you, today you'll be with me in paradise. What did the thief say? He said, um, he said Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today. No, not when I come again. Today. He said, remember me. Jesus said, you're going to be with me. When you come into your earthly kingdom and establish your no, you're going to be with me in paradise. Jesus said, I can do far better than you can ask or imagine. Here's what Jesus just told him, and here's what he tells every single person in this room who has truly been born again. Here's the promise. The last breath you take on this earth will be followed by the first breath that you take in the very presence of Jesus in paradise. That's the promise. The New Testament picks up on this theology again and again and again. That's the problem. That's why Stephen, before the heavens, when he is being stoned, he looks up and says, Lord, receive my spirit. This is what he knows to be true. So Paul says, uh, what shall I do? To depart and be with the Lord is far better, but to stay with you all is better for you and your joyous progress in the faith. To be apart from the body is to be at home with the Lord, Paul writes. Understand the promise. There's a day Christ will come again. In that day, and I'll read it to you, in that day, the dead in Christ will literally rise from the grave. They're gonna have a resurrection just like Christ. They'll rise. And if we're still here, like it could come today, if we're still here in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be changed. The dead in Christ first, then we'll be changed. And what that means is we're all, the text says we're gonna put on the perishable will go. This old body, which is growing older and grayer and wrinklier and sicker and more diseased and failing, this body that's failing will be put down and we'll all say amen. But there's gonna be an imperishable body that's put on, made for immortality, that you can literally, this imperishable body, uh, um, uh, uh, free from sin, free to live in the presence and the dwelling of Christ for all of eternity, will be put on. And understand what the text is saying, the promise is this, that from the day you die until the day he comes again, here's the promise, you're not going to soul sleep. The promise is, according to scripture, there's no purgatory. Not according to scripture. According to the scripture, If there's an interval between your death and the coming of Christ, your last breath on this earth is followed by your first breath in the presence of Christ in paradise. This is why Paul writes these beautiful words. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. In an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Listen, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This was the day, this was the day that death lost its sting. This was the day. For the one who has saving faith will never feel the sting of death. Let me close with a story. 1829, a man named George Wilson He was a uh, convicted criminal. He had been part of a robbery and a murder as a, uh, as a heist on the U.S. mail. And uh, he was captured and he was sentenced to die. Uh, he was going to be hanged on the gallows. And uh, between the time of his sentencing and the time of his execution, his friends began to um, uh, ask and uh, write to the higher-ups for a pardon. Their request reached all the way to the president. And so one day, President Andrew Jackson signed a pardon for George Wilson. The pardon reached the sheriff who was going to be carrying out the execution of George Wilson the week of, that his execution was meant to happen. And so the sheriff brought him the good news that there's been a pardon signed on his behalf, that he is free. True story, George Wilson says, I refuse the pardon. The sheriff's confused. George Wilson says, I will not receive the gift of the pardon. I want to receive what is due me in my execution. The sheriff was mixed up on this. He said, well, I don't know how I can execute a man who's been pardoned by the United States president. And so he sent a question back to President Jackson and said, the man is refusing the pardon. What shall I do? President Jackson wasn't sure, so he sent it to the Supreme Court. <clears throat> and Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall gave this ruling. You ready? A pardon is a piece of paper, the value of which depends on its acceptance by the person implicated. Anyone under the sentence of death would hardly be expected to refuse a pardon. But if it is refused, it's no pardon at all. George Wilson was executed on the gallows with a signed pardon from President Jackson hundreds of feet away on the sheriff's desk. That day at Calvary, Christ signed your pardon. And when he rose from the dead on Sunday morning, he delivered your pardon question on the table is, have you received it? Have you been pardoned from your sin through saving faith in Christ? John eleven twenty nine 29 says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, listen to this, though he die, yet shall he live. What's the promise? Last breath here. 
followed by your first breath with him. Unending, joyous fellowship. It's the fruit of repentance, which comes from brokenness and helplessness from someone who is born again. Will you pray with me? Let me say, if there's anyone here, even now, um, just somehow knowing in your gut that yours has been merely an intellectual faith or maybe no faith at all, but something stirs in your heart right now that says, this is the way, follow it. Someone here that is broken over your sin, weary, beat down, tired in your sin, tired in your self-righteousness, tired of pretending. Understand that whoever comes to me, Jesus said, though he dies, yet will he live. I would invite you to receive the pardon, to lay your burden down at Mercy Hill, at the foot of the cross, and receive the gift, the receipt of redemption, the precious blood that washes you white as snow. You can simply say these words. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.